morning. It's good to be here with you all. If you'll turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3, we're going to continue where we left off last week. If you grab the blue Bible, that's page 888. If you grab the red one, that's 1,130. If you grabbed one and you don't have a Bible, please, please take that Bible. That is our gift to you. Well, it is great here to be here this morning. My name is Stuart McRae. I have the privilege of serving on, past, on staff here as one of the pastors. And you're going to have to excuse me. I'm, I'm fighting a cold, so there might be some extra drinking of water and, and maybe even a muting of the mic uh, so I can cough. But uh, I trust there will be grace for this. So, All right, John 3. Last week we saw from John 3, 1 through 15, that the new birth is a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit by means of Christ's death on the cross received by faith in Christ. And in the second half of that text, verses 9 through 15, we work through Jesus' answer to Nicodemus' question, how does the new birth happen? And the crux of Jesus' answer came in verses 14 through 15 where Jesus said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus says that just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so that whoever looked would live, so too must he be lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks to him with the eyes of faith would not only have the venomous sting of sin taken away, but in its place new life in him, eternal life, would be brought about. Well, our text this morning logically continues right where we left off last week, and the indicator for this is seen in the word for at the beginning of verse 16. Follow along with me as I read our text, John 3, 16 through 21. <clears throat> for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, interestingly, almost every commentator agrees that these verses contain commentary from the Apostle John, that's the author of this gospel, on Jesus' answer to Nicodemus in verses 14 through 15. The difficulty in determining if this is Jesus or John speaking is that in the original text, there's no punctuation. And so to determine who's speaking in a text like this, it's, it's based on content and also considering the language that's being used. Now, in regards to content, you could go either way. In regards to language, well, the language used in 16 through 21 is quite different than that of 1 through 15. To, to name just two instances, Jesus doesn't normally refer to God in the terms used in verse 16. And the expression in verse 16 translated only son is exclusively used by the apostle. 
Let me also say this. I know many of you, like me, use a red-letter Bible. And you may find the idea that John is speaking here to be distressing, since these words are in red. If that's you and you're a little distressed, let me assure you that all the words in this book are God's words, red letter or not. In other words, the red letter words are not more important than the black words because they've all been written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're all God's life-giving words. So with that, we'll come to see this morning in God's word is God the Father sent his one unique son into the world on a mission. Not to condemn humanity, but to save rebels against his throne who already stood condemned. Let me say that again. God the Father sent his one unique son into the world on a mission. Not to condemn humanity, but to save rebels against his throne who already stood condemned. And our sermon here this morning is entitled The Mission of God and Sending His Son. And, and using that, we'll look at our text in two points. Point one, 16 through 18. The mission of God and sending his son was to rescue. Point two, verses 19 through 21. The mission of God and sending his son created battle lines. Well, follow along with me as I reread verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And we cannot separate our passage this morning from last week's passage. The apostle is trying to tell us more about the new birth. Last week we read in verses 14 through 15 that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And for this purpose, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And Jesus was put on the cross to be the, the grounds, the, the means for the new birth. And why? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God the Father so intensely loved the world. That is, rebellious humans in whom he created in his own image. God the Father so intensely loved the world that he gifted rebellious humans, his one unique eternal son to be the means of the new birth. Oh, and let's not gloss over this, but rather let's make this crystal clear. The, the reason that God sent his one unique son into the world was, was not because humanity had done something to be worth it. It was not because God owed them something because we're all essentially good people. It was not because humanity had figured out that they needed to be saved and then provided God with his plan of rescue. It was not because God was lonely in heaven and wanted more company. Finally, the reason why God sent his son, his unique eternal son into the world was, was not because we loved him first. The consistent testimony of scripture 
is that rebellious humans cannot love God apart from him gifting them the enable the ability to do so through the new birth. Listen. The reason why God put Christ on the cross to be the means for the new birth, the reason why God gifted rebellious humans his one unique son is because he so intensely loved rebellious humans. It was not because there was or was anything lovely about them Apart from saving faith in Christ, sinful humanity, we are rebels. We're antagonists to God's holy throne. Romans 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, while we were still hostile to God, Christ died for us. There's nothing deserving in sinful humanity of God's love. Oh, the contrary. What sinful humanity deserves is God's just wrath poured out on it, earned by its sin. As John says in 1 John 4, 9 through 10, and this is the love of God, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, God's God's love was the costly love of sending his only son to rebellious Humanity, and it's all a gracious gift from God rooted in his love. The purpose for God gifting his son to be the means of the new birth is seen at the end of verse 16, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. If you recall, this is the the same purpose for Christ being lifted up on the cross in verse 15, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And and I really want us to, to see how this is all hitched together from verse 14 through verse 16. And so if you'll follow along with me on the screen, I'm gonna try to make this clear. Verse 14, Jesus was put on the cross to be the means for the new birth. Verse 15, the purpose that For Jesus being put on the cross was to be the object of faith so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 16a, the first half of 16, the the reason why God the Father gifted his son to sinful humanity was because he so intensely loved rebellious sinners. And then the end of 16, the purpose so that for God the Father gifting his son to sinful humanity was so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 15 and the the end of verse 16 are paralleling purposes for why Jesus was lifted up on the cross and why God the Father put Christ on the cross. 
And so the purpose of Jesus being put on the cross was to be the object of faith so that whoever believes in him should not perish but receive eternal life by faith in him. Verse 16, along with the whole of the biblical witness, does not provide a middle ground. Jesus, as we'll continue to see in our passage, creates battle lines. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either putting your faith in Jesus, which results in eternal life, or you're rejecting Jesus, which results in eternal destruction. There there simply is no middle ground, no third option. Now verses 17 through 18 serve to clarify the reason for why God gifted his son to rebellious humans. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And and here we see that the mission of God in sending his Son was to rescue. God sent Jesus on a mission, not to condemn the world, but to rescue rebels to his throne through belief in Jesus' saving work on the cross. And some find it difficult to reconcile verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, with a verse like John 9, 39, where Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world. And it's true, God has given Jesus authority to judge. We saw that two weeks ago in the account of the temple cleansing. Jesus is the Messiah who brings God's judgment. And so the question for us is, how do we, how do we reconcile these things? Theologian D.A. Carson is helpful when he writes, the Son of Man came into an already lost and condemned world. He did not come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. He came into a lost world, for that is the nature of the world, in order to save some. That not all the world will be saved is made perfectly clear by the next verses, but God's purpose in the mission of Jesus was to bring salvation to it. That is why Jesus is later called the Savior of the world. You see, while while condemnation is unavoidable, it's not what the love of God seeks to bring about. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. All humanity already stood condemned. What Jesus is trying to make clear in the contrast that's found in verse 17 is that the Messiah came on a rescue mission to save. And not just the Jews, but to rescue persons from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The mission of God in sending his son was to rescue whoever believes from amongst all the peoples. It's worth noting a shift in verse 18 from sinful humanity in general to specific individuals who believe or do not believe in the name of Jesus. 
This was certainly touched on in verse 16, but it's made explicit here in verse 18. And this change in emphasis is worth noting because this is the plight of all individuals. Before faith in Christ, all individuals are already standing condemned. All persons, everywhere, individually, are already in need of a savior before God's son even came on his rescue mission. What's more is that the sinful person's guilt is compounded once the savior comes because Jesus lived amongst mankind. He performed signs and wonders and they still rejected him and did not believe in his name. The mission of God in sending his son was to rescue. Okay, so, brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we, how do we think about these verses? Well, there's something here that relates to the content of our evangelistic witness. There, there's something here that relates to the content of our witness. You see, these verses are not merely more information about the new birth, but just like John's entire gospel, John is writing with an eye towards evangelism. And going through these verses, we've seen both the bad news of man's dilemma, that because of sin, humanity stands condemned before a holy and just God, and we've also seen the good news, that God sent his one unique eternal son on a rescue mission to save. And, and these two aspects, the bad news and the good news, inform the content of John's evangelistic witness, and they should inform the content of our evangelistic witness as well. And brothers and sisters in Christ, as we consider engaging with those around us that are not yet born again and therefore who have not placed their faith in Christ alone, we must inform them of both the good news and the bad news. We must let them know the bad news, that their sinful rebellion against holy God has them standing before him condemned and deserving his just wrath for their sins against him. And we must let them know the bad news because unless the bad news is understood, the the good news won't be good news. But then we must share the good news. We must let them know of God's rescue mission and sending his son to save. And the language he gave his only son necessarily implies Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so we need to talk about that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he lived a perfect, sinless life, and then he died on the cross taking the penalty of God's wrath for sins for everyone who believes. Of course, we must let them know that he didn't stay dead. He rose again three days later, conquering Satan, sin, and death. These verses should inform the content of our evangelistic witness, and we need to express both the bad news and the good news. Well, these verses have revealed to us that the mission of God in sending his son was to rescue, but John is not done. In the concluding three verses, John will give us insight into why those who are condemned are condemned and why those who are rescued are rescued. 
Follow along with me as I reread verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And the point of these verses is that the mission of God in sending his son created battle lines. And the way that the beginning of verse 19 is stated is a bit misleading. What John is trying to communicate here is something more like, and the judgment, or or the verdict, depending on the translation you're looking at, and the judgment is based on this fact. You, You see, John is not telling us about God's sentence. He's trying to explain to us the dynamic process for how the judgment comes about. And the basis for the judgment is the light has come into the world, that's Jesus, and all people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now the metaphorical terms of light and darkness have clear moral connotations. These terms are grounding humanity's rejection of Jesus in their sinful nature, which was a result of the fall. One commentator is helpful, I think, when he writes, in the beginning of this gospel, John described the darkness of the world. But here in verse 19, John explains it. The world manifested its darkness by its self-love and selfishness, both of which necessarily exclude God. For God should be loved and obeyed. It was only when the love of God came, when the light came into the world, that the darkness saw itself by means of contrast. It was only in the light that humanity could see that it was in darkness. You see, Jesus, the light of the world, came into the world that he created and illuminated humanity as loving evil. It was their nature, and it was evidenced in their works that were evil. In their selfishness and self-love and exclusion of God, mankind had made themselves to be their own God, deciding what was right and true. But the one and only true God entered into the world that he created through the person of Jesus and exposed the world as sinful, idolatrous, evil, and condemned. We must remember that Jesus didn't come into a humanity where where some loved him and some hated him, nor did Jesus come into a neutral world in order to save some and condemn others. No, Jesus came into a humanity that already stood condemned because they were already sinfully rebelling against holy God because that was their nature. Verse 19 tells us that the basis for humanity's judgment is seen in both who humanity is by nature at the core of their hearts, namely, they love the darkness rather than the light, as the text says, and what humanity does in their actions, namely evil, as the text says. The late biblical scholar Alec Matir said, we live by what we love. 
The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. You, you see, here we see the principle that what one habitually does reflects who one is in their heart at the core of their being. The Bible speaks of the heart as being the causal core of our being. The, the heart, the Bible says, is the reason behind why you do what you do, think what you think, say what you say, love what you love, desire what you desire. It all comes from the heart. Well, Jesus didn't just expose the world that the world loved evil, he also exposed that they hated him. Verse 20, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The, the reason why sinful rebels love the darkness and do evil is because they hate the light. In their hearts, whether they would articulate it this way or not, the Bible's stinging reality is that by rejecting Jesus, unbelievers are declaring in their hearts hatred for Jesus. And what's more, in their hatred, they do not come to the light out of simple pride of not wanting their evil works to be exposed for what they really are. This was all of us. The darkness is a hole where there is no escape. Sinful humanity loves the darkness and hates the light and will not come into the light because they do not want what they love to be exposed for what it really is. The worship of self and the demonic hatred of God and his Messiah. And so they, they stay away from the only thing that could set them free. Sinful humanity Sinful humanity's problem is a fundamental heart problem. What they need is what Nicodemus needed, and it's what we all need. A heart change that will enable us to see Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, as the Son of God. The consistent testimony from Scripture is that rebellious humans cannot love God apart from him giving them a new heart through being born again from above. We're continuing to get more data for why we, we must not marvel at Jesus' command. You must be born again. Without a new heart, we cannot and will not come into the light of Christ and the love of Jesus for who he is as God's unique son and the savior of all peoples everywhere. But there are some who come into the light. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Jesus came into a world, a battlefield, filled with rebels, and he rescues some. And in so doing, Jesus creates a line, as it were, on the battlefield that did not previously exist. 
And we see that line being drawn between verses 19 and 20 and verse 21. Verse 21 serves as a, as a contrast to that of verses 19 through 20. Here, whoever does what is true comes to the light. And the implication based on what we learned in the previous verses is that those people do what is true, that is not evil, and come to the light because in their hearts, at the core of the being, they love the light. What's more, the, the purpose for them going into the light is so that it can be clearly seen that their righteous works their love for the light has been carried out through God's power, not their own. That's what this little phrase, in God, means as it relates to the works being carried out. D.A. Carson is once again helpful here when he writes, this strange expression, in God, makes it clear that the lover of light is not some intrinsically superior person. If he or she enjoys the light, it is because all that has been performed has been done through God in union with him and therefore by his power. Those who love the light and do what is true come into the light so that everyone can see that the reason why they are the way they are and the reason why they do what they do is as a result of God's power. Remember, we live by what we love. The shape of our lives is determined by the joys of our hearts. And the, the line on the battlefield between belief and unbelief, between loving the light and hating the light, between going into the light and staying away from the light is as a result of the heart change that is powerfully brought about by the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in giving the new birth. The mission of God in sending his son created battle lines. So believers in Christ, what do we do with these verses? Well, verses 16 through 18 inform the content of our evangelistic witness. Then verses 19 through 21 inform the way we should think about our evangelistic efforts. Verses 19 through 21 make it clear that what, what non-believers need, what we all needed most is a heart change. Otherwise, they, they won't come out of the darkness and into the light because they love the darkness and hate the light. And when we think about this in the context of our evangelistic witness and effort, we're to understand that only God can change the heart. As believers in Christ, we're simply called to be faithful to get the gospel out there. That's our role. God's role is to add power to what we preach, teach, and evangelistically proclaim so that dead persons can receive new life. This should be encouraging and motivating. We don't have to be the sharpest tool in the shed we don't have to have all the answers. We're just called to be faithful. God does the heavy lifting. He's the one who saves. And the really great news is that God also empowers us to be faithful. Jesus, the one who has 
all authority in heaven and on earth, said he be with us, empowering us through the indwelling Holy Spirit to do this work of disciple-making. These verses should inform the way we think about our evangelistic efforts. Our work is to speak. God's work is to save. The mission of God in sending his son created battle lines. Jesus came into a hostile world, not a, not a neutral world, a hostile world, a world universally. But in his coming, he rescued some. And in so doing, he created a line on the battlefield between those who hate him and those who love him, between those who reject him and those who believe in him. And for those who believe in him, they come into the light so that it will be made clear that God deserves all the honor, all the credit, all the glory for making them lovers of the light. So what have we seen in our text this morning? God the Father so intensely loved rebellious sinners, humans, that he sent his one unique son into the world on a mission. Not to condemn humanity, but to save rebels against his throne who already stood condemned. If you're here this morning and have not yet put your trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I I want to warn you, the Bible says you stand condemned already. You stand condemned before the holy and just God of this universe, the very God who created you. And your sin, just like my sin, just like all of our sin, is due God's just wrath against it. Oh, but there's good news. God the Father sent his only unique eternal son on a rescue mission to save. And if you will believe in Jesus... In his saving work on the cross, you will not perish, but receive eternal life. Finally, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's an, there's an application that I've, I've saved here at the end because it's for this whole passage. The content of the truths that are contained in these verses should cause us to worship God for sending his only son to rescue rebels like us. In eternity past, it was God who devised the plan to seek and save a people for himself through the sending of his son. Oh, there was nothing in us that compelled God to save us. No, we were enemies of God. In our hearts, we were hostile to God. All we brought to the equation was our sin. It made us damnable before him. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Oh, there is much to celebrate and worship our great God and Savior for saving wretches like us, rebels to his throne, all by his grace alone. But that's not all. God not only saves rebels and gives them new hearts to the Spirit's work, but then he empowers us in an ongoing way to live out this Christian life. 
God is pleased and he promises that he will finish what he started. He won't leave us until the saving work that he started is brought to full completion and all of his children are fully and finally transformed into the image of God. Oh, God is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship for this great salvation that he has brought about from start and as he will do to finish. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do pray, giving you thanks and worship that you are rightly and appropriately due for all that you have done from eternity past to eternity future to in sending your son to seek and save a people for yourself. All we've done, all we have offered is our sin. Our sin that makes us stand condemned before you and that put Christ on the cross. But we give you thanks. We give you praise for doing all that was necessary to seek and save a people through the mission of sending your son to save rebels like us. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.